Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com. Check out all the fun stuff they always have going on. That is OsirisPod.com. In this episode, I once again share an interview with music critic and journalist Stephen Hyden, the author of This Isn't Happening, which was about Radiohead, Twilight of the Gods, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, and with Steve Gorman, Hard to Handle. His writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Washington Post, Billboard, Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, Grantland, The AV Club, Slate, and Salon. Currently, he's the cultural critic at Uproxx. Stephen's latest book, Long Road, Pearl Jam, and the Soundtrack of a Generation, is the focus of this episode, and in it he celebrates the life, career, and music of Pearl Jam, widely considered to be one of the greatest American rock bands of all time. As the back cover of The Long Road puts it, much like the generation it emerged from, Pearl Jam is a mass of contradictions. They were an enormously successful mainstream rock band who felt deeply uncomfortable with the pursuit of capitalistic spoils. They were progressive activists who spoke in favor of abortion rights and against the Ticketmaster monopoly, and yet they epitomized the sound of traditional male-dominated rock and roll. They were looked at as a spokesman for their generation, even though they ultimately projected profound confusion and alienation. They triumphed and failed in equal doses, the quintessential Gen X tale. Impressive as their stats, accolades, and longevity may be, Stephen also argues that Pearl Jam's most definitive accomplishment lies in the impact their music had on Generation X as a whole. Pearl Jam's music helped an entire generation of listeners connect with the glory of bygone rock mythology and made it relevant during a period in which tremendous American economic prosperity belied a darkness at the heart of American youth. More than just a chronicle of the band's career, Long Road is also a story about Gen X itself, who, like Pearl Jam, came from angsty, outspoken roots and then evolved into an establishment institution without ever fully shaking off their uncertain outsider past. For so many Gen Xers growing up at the time, Pearl Jam's music was a beacon that offered both solace and guidance. They taught an entire generation how to grow up without losing their purest and most essential parts of themselves. So in this episode, me and Steven discussed the unique way in which he decided to organize the book and what a cassette known as the Mama Sun Tape meant to the genesis of Pearl Jam. We talk about how a fateful night at Red Rocks Amphitheater in June of 1995 helped shape the band's identity and how the Grateful Dead influenced Pearl Jam in the later stages of their career. We explore Stephen's love for the guitarist Mark McGrady and the singular way in which Gen X often turns on their childhood musical heroes. We discuss how Pearl Jam found a way to survive and thrive well into their middle ages when so many of their peers crashed and burned and so much more. I really can't say enough about how much I enjoyed Stephen's book. If you are a Pearl Jam fan, this is an essential read. But if you like music in general, this book holds so many stories about acts such as The Who, Led Zeppelin, The Grateful Dead, Mother Love Bone, Nirvana, Stone Temple Pilots, Soundgarden, Neil Young, and more. And beyond that, it really takes a thoughtful look back at the 90s and the events that not only shaped Pearl Jam, but those around at the time and the world. It was so fun to talk to Stephen about Long Road, and I have no doubt you will love this interview with Stephen Hyden. 
Steven. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. I'm good. Thank you so much for coming uh, back on the program. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I don't always have uh, reoccurring guests on here, but I mean, you, what uh, the stuff you write about and the way you write about it really, really hits me. It's really, I just so relatable. It's all, you know, we grew up through the same music, through the whole thing. This is just our experience with Pearl Jam was so similar as I went through the book. It's great. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate being a return guest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I want to start out asking because I really love the way that you the book is organized. Um, it's very unique and something I think a lot of music fans will uh, gravitate to and appreciate. So how did um, you organize the chapters in, uh, in Long Road? Uh, you mean like the mixtape? Yeah, that's yeah, exactly what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I did something similar uh, for my second book, uh, which was Twilight of the Gods. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did a thing like where each chapter was named after a song. Yeah. And I structured it into, it was like a double album. Mm -hmm. So I I borrowed that idea for for this book. And I don't know, it just seemed like a a fun way to do it. I mean, with, with Long Road, you know, each chapter is named after a book. Uh, I'm sorry, each chapter is named after a song. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the chapters aren't necessarily just about that song. It's like yeah, using a not song as an entry point to talk about a period in the band's uh, career. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, there's just something about thinking of it that way. It, it, it made it feel more homemade to me. Like I, you know, I wanted it to feel like a mixtape. You know that your friend would give you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as much as it would feel like a book. Um, I think too that, like, when I write books, I like to think of them as albums. Yeah, because yeah. I just <laughs> wish I could make albums, but I can't. <laughs> Me both. Yeah. I, I write books and I yeah. just present them like they're albums. Mm-hmm. I like that. When I turned the page and you even went to a side B, I was like, that. Was yeah, exactly. So the genesis of Pearl Jam kind of revolves around something called the Mama Sun tape. And uh, I love how you put it. You wrote that uh, uh, that tape is to Pearl Jam as um, Bruce Wayne's parents are to Batman. Um, so yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit to the listeners, and it's all really spelled out in the book, but um, you know how that tape uh, uh, relates to Pearl Jam's origin story. Yeah, I mean the the Batman line. I, I really meant that in the sense that you know there's been so many adaptations of Batman, and mm. it seems like they always have to show Bruce Wayne's parents being killed, even though like we all know at this point yeah. that his parents get killed, and that's how he becomes Batman. And um, for myself, writing about that tape, you know, it's important to talk about because it is part of the origin story, but. Yeah. You know, when you're writing a book like this, like I'm trying to appeal to people that may not know much about Pearl Jam and at the same time also appeal to people who like know everything about Pearl Jam. So it's yeah. like, how do you balance that? Mm-hmm. And I think I was just trying to 
get through that material without it feeling uh you know sort of you're over the head with like it. tired or boring you know like I, I think in my mind i was just very aware of like okay i just don't i don't want to be regurgitating um <clears throat> sort of well-known exposition here even right. though you have to it's essential though absolutely acknowledge it. Uh, yeah. so so that's what that was about really because mm -hmm. yeah, like i'm not writing this isn't a biography this is like a first person critical overview of the band uh and i'm a music critic but i'm also a fan so i was trying to you know balance those two sides at all times you know Absolutely. writing the book the, the fandom really really comes through and i think that's what that's what you know kind of makes the book really special to another fan uh and i'll say that but uh there was um uh another moment i want to point to that's that's that you know kind of changed the band's trajectory in a major way and it was pivotal uh, it was a night at Red Rocks that you talk about, and just I think that's that's kind of such a important way because I think that's where you kind of pointed to the fact where they found their identity. Uh, what happened yeah. on the stage that night, and um, what was June of '95? Yeah, June twentieth of, of nineteen ninety-five, and, and that's the first chapter of the book. And um, that show, uh, I just think, is really fascinating, especially like the first half or so. It's like a little bit less than half, where. Pearl Jam comes out and they, uh, you know, they're sitting in chairs for the first couple songs and they're really playing a set that doesn't feel like a typical set, especially at that time. You know, they tried doing a Nick uh, Cave song and they don't know it that well. So they have to stop in the middle and go to the next song. Wild. They started, they, they played this version of Jeremy, which became semi common where Eddie Vedder wouldn't sing the chorus of the song. Mm. So it was almost like you're singing the song, but you're not doing the most cathartic part. You know, it's sort of a perverse uh, arrangement of that. And then they end up playing this song called Falling Down. And that's mm. the song I focused on. And they only played it this one time. Yeah. And it's a song that you can tell isn't totally worked out, but it's like, pretty much there and it, it seems like the kind of song that if pearl jam had decided to really focus on it it just seems like it could have been a hit like it's a really pretty song mm -hmm. and i really focused in on that moment because it, it because of its proximity to another show that is more famous from that summer which is the show that pearl jam played uh, I believe it was four days later in San Francisco where Eddie Vedder couldn't finish the show because he had food poisoning. I think they played seven songs yeah. and then Neil Young came out and like people were just booing. They were very upset. It's like 50,000 people there. And in the moment people looked at that San Francisco show as the beginning of the end. Mm. There was a lot of speculation that Pearl Jam was imploding at that time. Of course, this was, coinciding with their big battle against Ticketmaster. Uh, there was a lot of controversy around the band. And it just seemed like, oh, wow, they just blew this big show. The, you know, this they're, they're, they're circling the drain. Yeah, and yeah, of course, that's yeah. not what happened. Mm -hmm. And it was very intriguing to me to pick a show right before that that is less celebrated, but to me says something about how Pearl Jam ultimately carried themselves as a band of their stature that they were destined to become this band that would still play arenas and even stadiums, but would 
really have kind of like an unconventional uh, approach to being that kind of band, being a little more sort of improvisational, a little more off the cuff. And when it comes to a song like Falling Down, they're going to play that song once because it's a moment in time and it's a special thing. And they don't need to turn that into a hit. You know, they don't need to uh, have the kind of big MTV type dominating songs that they had early in the career. Mm -hmm. So it's just to me, I I felt like that show, it just represented a lot of things to me that I wanted to talk about. So that's why it ended up being the first chapter of the book. I love how you put it, how they learned to kind of harness the power of no and right. that okay to create something in one space, leave it behind you and create again somewhere else, which is so crucial to, especially as they become such a band focus on live live experiences. Um, I love all the comparisons that are made um, and it gives you a chance to talk about so many other bands, you, you, you know, Led Zeppelin, The Who, and uh, Dead, whatever. Um, so there's lots of comparisons to, to lots of bands. And I was wondering if you could discuss, is there one of the bands that you feel is, trajectory is closest to them or or is this kind of a fool's errand of a question because they are i think you mentioned at one point kind of anomaly themselves but is there one band that really stands out to you that that kind of um has a similar you know you can compare them more than uh than two other bands yeah you know one of the reasons why i wanted to write the book is because i'm really interested in uh band histories and band catalogs and um you know, looking at like why some bands go on for decades and other bands yeah. implode after a few years. I I just find that really interesting. It's fascinating. And yeah. uh, with Pearl Jam, I just feel like their trajectory is so unique. I mean, there's there's not many bands that were as big as they were mm-hmm. really early on, who then found a way to navigate their way through that success. And find a way to maintain their popularity while also having no media profile at all, which is where Pearl Jam is at the moment. Right. Like they, yep. they can play stadiums, they can, um, you know, yeah, they can sell tens of thousands of, of tickets all around the world, um, but they really do operate like a cult band in yeah. a lot of ways. Okay. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, I ended up I ended up writing a lot about the Who in the book. I learned because, so much about the Who, absolutely, and that was a logical thing in my mind to do for a couple of reasons. One, Eddie Vedder being such a big who fan mm-hmm. and I think emulating what they did in a lot of ways. Uh, I think Pearl jam musically shares a lot with, with the who as yeah. well as like Drew Springsteen mm-hmm. in the street band. That was another band I, I brought up mm-hmm. a lot. I think more so, you know, I think, Pearl Jam themselves have have often like pointed like to punk music, for instance, being a big influence. And I think that philosophically was an influence, certainly in in, in terms of how they carried themselves as a DIY band, even mm-hmm. as they became huge, mm-hmm. you know, doing a lot of things themselves and operating outside the music industry. I mean, Pearl Jam has done that about as well as anyone on their level, including many so-called like straightforward punk bands mm-hmm. that have gotten really big. Um, the other thing about the who is that there have just been like some really some strange parallels and yeah. I mean the, the like they both had big tragedies in their yeah. career very similar tragedies at, yeah at, at shows and with Pearl Jam 
you can see like how they learned from the who's example how they handled their disaster basically doing what the who didn't do you mm -hmm. know uh mm -hmm. and and really looking at their example and also having you know pete townsend as uh sort of like a big brother figure uh for for eddie vetter um so i thought that was really interesting um but yeah i mean to me um you know like whenever i write i write um these books i do try to take like a wider view of where that band fits in rock music and also in the greater culture yeah. and you know sometimes you you see comments from people you know who don't like that you know who get upset like if you aren't focused exclusively on the band or they don't understand like why you're talking about these other things but to me that's an essential part of it because no band exists in a vacuum absolutely and, and i think sometimes like for me anyway you know listening to the who helped me to understand certain aspects of pearl jam that just listening to pearl jam uh wouldn't have provided you know i i think sometimes if you can step outside of the band that you're writing about and mm -hmm. look at it from a different perspective and sometimes that's the, from the perspective of, of, a, of another artist yeah um it just opens things up and it it makes you notice things that might have been difficult to see if you're just have your nose pressed up against the glass of looking at one band yeah, no, I mean, I mean, you point out so uh, vividly how they were shaped by the generation they live in. It's 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 a fact, and just all those points in time that were happening around them. That, like you said, it doesn't exist in a vacuum, and it does influence them. It was really, I I just loved also your like kind of um, poignant takes on um, we're both Gen Xers, and just it just <laughs> I was really laughing at us how how unique and weird of a bunch we are because you 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 point out how. We are a group of people, unlike boomers and millennials, who we turn on our childhood favorites. And I just thought that was really interesting. And I, and I thought that'd be interesting to hear you talk a little bit about the Gen X unique uh, ways in their fandoms and how many related to many of us related to Pearl Jam as the band kind of went into the 2000s. It is interesting how many people, they were so popular and then they found a way to you know, stay popular in a different way. But there was a lot of people that, you know, uh, uh, loved them and then didn't. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think Pearl Jam, you know, they are a victim of, if you want to use the word victim, I mean, they, they were such a fundamental part of rock music and just pop culture in general, mm. certainly in the early 90s, that, for a lot of people they're still fixed in that moment um i know from just doing press for this book mm -hmm. you know depending on who i'm talking to they only want to talk about 10 and maybe oh, really wow you know and um not even vitology <laughs> well yeah i mean maybe you know but like the yeah. first three records yeah, sure, you know? sure. yeah yeah that's and then after that it really peters out in terms of not everybody, but you know, a lot of a lot of the like a fair number of people I've talked to like that, and I, and I understand that. I mean, I think that's a pretty common I view it. of the band, and um, even like how they're represented, like on radio, for instance, like it's still like pretty much those three records, and you don't hear 
even stuff from like by uh, from no code or uh yield you know like not even like the other 90s records are as represented you might hear like given to fly but like other than that it's like for the most part the first three records and um you know and it's really fixed them in that moment and that's a great moment for the band but it's also that's not who the band became and it's not who the band is now you know like eddie vetter uh climbing the rafters and throwing himself in the audience you know like that was a a version of the band that they moved out of fairly quickly. And, you know, I write a lot about the uh, 2000 tour, mm-hmm. uh, which was the tour. That was the first time that they released all the bootlegs yeah. of the tour. And, and like for me getting back into the band, cause I was in, in the, I was in, I was a huge Pearl Jam fan in the nineties. And then I, I, I drifted away. Like I think a lot of people did. Right. And then um, yeah, I, I got sucked back in by listening to the live stuff. Mm-hmm. And, it was a revelation for me because I could hear that they were still this powerful band, but there was also just a lot more nuance and and subtlety and and, and craft really in the band. But they could have these passionate songs that also had, I think, a greater dynamic range. You know, it wasn't all about beating the chest and singing from the rafters. Like as wonderful as that stuff is, mm-hmm. you know, I think they were able to find some different colors and and modes of expression by the end of the 90s and that stuff again it's it's not quite as like celebrated or known like in a, in a wider uh uh sense and I, I think for me writing the book that was like one thing i really wanted to talk about like that aspect of the band and just like their lives work in general because yeah. i think that pearl jam as a live band that is their greatest legacy you mm-hmm. know they have several great records but if i'm gonna make a case for pearl jam being one of the greats yep. it's gonna start with their life work well, that's... And i think that continues to this day you know that they yeah. have a, a certain ethic that you can liken to like a bruce springsteen mm-hmm. where they are going to deliver a powerful rock experience every night every night it's going to be three hours it's going to be a different set list um you know they're they're never going to phone it in. Um, getting to your generational question, mm-hmm. you know it it is interesting because there's just fewer Generation Xers than there are Boomers or Millennials. Yeah, the number was crazy: twelve million less from Boomers, something 18, like that. Yeah, yeah. It, there's something. just way yeah. more, and so yeah. I think that colors how Gen X stuff is discussed because you know Boomers are skeptical about it from one angle and then millennials are skeptical about it from another. And it's fascinating to me now because, you know, like when people talk about the nineties, you know, there's really two different nineties. There's like the early nineties and there's the later nineties and the early nineties is more of like a uh, sort of Gen X period. And then the late nineties is more millennial. And I feel like the late nineties have kind of taken over the nineties, you know, and like the, the sort of like Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, Mm -hmm. new metal nineties, like Mm -hmm. that's kind of taken over because it's more of like a millennial thing, Um, which I I would not have expected. 
you know, but I'm, I'm a little bit older, you know? So like, to me, when I look at the nineties, it's like, it feels like a progression from this more sort of idealistic type music mm-hmm. to music that has merits, but it, it, it seems more cynical to me. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately. But like, that's not how younger people see it. Yeah. You know, I think they kind of look at the early nineties as being a little gray. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and self-righteous and like the late 90s being more colorful and more fun yeah. you know so you know those things it's, it's like whoever gets the right like whoever has the numbers gets to write the history so i don't yeah. I, I feel like that might become the narrative of the 90s yeah more so moving forward i would i would find that to be a bit of a shame i also love how you break down a little bit um and you mentioned how time kind of changes uh, the way art is viewed at the alt uh, rock versus indie rock thing that was going on. And just like now, I mean, it's really kind of all just kind of come together. Someone in the book got a, got a lot of love and I'd love to see it was um, uh, uh, Mark McGrady. And you, you know, you find out that you're, you know, that he's your favorite member of Pearl Jam. Uh, why so? Well, you know, McGrady, I mean, for a bunch of reasons, I mean, I think just on a personal level, yeah. I mean, all the guys in Pearl Jam seem like they're pretty cool and approachable people. Um, McCready, though, just seems like he's always seemed like the guy I'd want to hang out with the most. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's just kind of a weird, arbitrary <laughs> projection type thing. But I think in a musical sense, and again, going back to the live experience with Pearl Jam, you know, McCready does, I think, other than Vetter, like the most heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Pearl Jam because you know if there are improvisational elements going on in you know songs like Porch or Even Flow or uh, you know certain versions of Rearview Mirror you know just songs that or uh, you know Crazy Mary songs that have a little more of like an instrumental jammy part to it it's typically McCready that is you know bringing something different to the table you know like a song like even flow you know i don't think i ever need to hear the studio version of that again like i've heard that a million times and i'm 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 like i'm not really a fan of that song on record but that song live surprisingly Mm. like i really like it and it's because of mccready and it's what he does in the middle of the song Mm -hmm. because he's usually playing something pretty cool like for his guitar solo and it stretches it out uh, for that reason so and and just him on stage i mean i was talking about this with a friend of mine who's not really a pearl jam fan and he rolls his eyes at mccready because mccready is like a ham on yeah. stage usually like walks like in a box you know yeah. like puts in miles walk, in like, the box. yeah he walk like 10 miles just like going <laughs> circles uh and uh you know and he's pretty theatrical uh which but i love that and it, it's really entertaining to watch him on yeah. stage yeah no yeah. doubt along with just what he's doing musically you know is also exciting but the theater and the music together it's it's just a cool thing you uh, kind of compared him to pearl jams jerry garcia in that way if there was improvisation so i want to ask you that to kind of like to talk about the dead of it i thought it was really cool to see that they were directly inspired by the grateful dead and they they actually went out of their way to learn how they maintained their success and so that that was something i learned in your book that i didn't know they actually uh i'd love to hear you talk about it they actually 
I've made a point to see, you know, how they stayed successful for so long. So well, yeah, they went. To, they, they went to visit the, the dead's offices yeah. and, and learned. You know, and just looked at like, well, how do they maintain their mailing list, and like, yeah. how do they reach out to fans? I mean, like musically speaking, I don't think that there's much sure. of an influence there. I mean, yeah. Pearl Jam has been called a jam band from time to time, yeah. and they're not a jam band no. musically. Yeah. You know, there are elements of their following that are very similar yeah. to uh, the jam community. Mm-hmm. You know, starting with just how obsessive fans are about collecting live bootlegs, which from talking with Grateful Dead fans who aren't in the Pearl Jam, I mean, it it is a little bit of a head scratcher, I think, for some of the jam band fans. It's like, why are you collecting all these recordings? Because it is true that like the versions of like a live on any given bootleg aren't dramatically different. You know, there's not the level of jamminess that you would get from a Grateful Dead or Fish Bootleg. Yeah. Um, however, there are differences that you can discern, and I know this. And I mean, I also collect Bruce Springsteen bootlegs, and it's a similar type thing where, you know, it may not sound dramatically different, but there's differences between tours. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's sometimes you're listening because there's cool between song patter going yeah. on or something yeah. bizarre happens. Yeah someone's equipment breaks down or whatever. I know there's like a million things uh, to enjoy there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think Pearl Jam from a business perspective, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they really did look at the Grateful Dead. And I think that Pearl Jam was really prescient in this regard because, you know, in the short term, I think you could look at how Pearl Jam carried themselves after 10 was such a success and feel like they were shooting themselves in the foot, you know, because they went out of their way to not make music videos. They really cut down on the amount of press that they did. They backed away from being a radio band, you know, in a much, which is a pretty dramatic about face from 10. Cause they, I mean, if you look at the 10 era, they were, they were basically doing everything that was thrown at them from a promotional perspective you know like they really played the game that you need to play in order to you know be that kind of band that's going to get a lot of airplay but then once they achieved that success they really backed off and they pursued this more sort of grassroots grateful dead model and it paid off because you know by the 2000s you really start to see that mainstream rock industry start to fall apart Mm -hmm. and bands that were catering to the radio and or MTV. Well, now radio and MTV aren't really interested in playing rock bands anymore. So like, where does that leave you if that's your bread and butter and you don't have that sort of loyal fan base? Well, you can see like a lot of bands from that era just sort of fell apart or, you know, they faded away. They weren't able to maintain their level of popularity. Whereas Pearl Jam was ahead of the curve and they willingly backed away from that and it just set them up for this 21st century era where they were just in a good position uh, to move forward again as like sort of a cult band mm-hmm. that was still like really successful. Yeah. Yeah. And the long run was super, super well played and smart when you, when you look at it uh, in that way. I, this is co- a comment, not a question, but I have to commend you on the way you close uh, 
you close in lines to each like segment or chapters. You land you land it pretty pretty special. There's for example uh, that one section you're talking about Eddie's band um, uh, Bad Radio and and you know they're talking about it. for that to happen. Uh, better man needed better man. I love that line. A lot, a lot of great, great lines. It's just, it's. I just, I find it to be excellent, excellent writing. But oh, thank you. Um, a lot of tragedy is discussed in this book, and 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 you know when you're talking about Seattle and what happened there. I mean, from Scott uh, uh, from STP, Andrew Wood from Mother Love Bone, Chris, of course. Um, you know, it, it's so many of these Seattle bands. They 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 they're all but done. But uh, Pearl Jam isn't. So what what was it that didn't snag them up at some point? I mean, there's like what what are some of the reasons they were able to, you know, not crash and burn through all of this? Well, I mean, I mean there's a variety of reasons. Sure, you know, it's hard to uh, know exactly why they didn't. Yeah. But I mean, for me, just looking at it, I, it seems like there were two crucial things. Number one, for the most part, they were able to avoid crippling drug and alcohol addictions yeah. in the band i mean mike mccready has a history of you know dealing with that in the 90s and early 2000s but for the most part you know they didn't have a lane staley in the band you know they didn't have a kurt cobain in the band you know sadly there was like a lot of just substance abuse issues going on in the 90s and mental health issues yeah. so they were lucky in that regard to avoid that mm-hmm. that the other thing and you mentioned this earlier, the power of no. I think that Pearl Jam was, again, canny about putting themselves above their career at, at, at crucial times uh, in their trajectory. Um, I mean, it's interesting looking back on this now because I feel like in the present day, people are a lot more sensitive about mental health issues with musicians. And if you see someone who is struggling and they decide that they have to pull back a little bit. I think people are just much more uh, considerate of that than they were back then. You know, when you have someone like Eddie Vedder openly talking about just struggling with how to deal with fame, you know, there was a lot of like, Oh, just suck it up, you know, just deal with it, you know, be happy. You know, you just, you should, you should be thrilled to be a rock star. Like, what are you complaining about? And um you know they just they took steps to preserve their own sanity even if in the short term it seemed to hurt their their career and um and again that seemed foolhardy in the moment and in retrospect it just looks wiser and wiser because they were able to uh you know go on for the long haul you know i mean because really it's like okay let's say you do this tour and you make money in a particular year how much is that worth if by the end of the tour everyone is miserable and they don't want to be in the band anymore you know it doesn't really make much sense so it just seems like they kind of figured out over time to just think of think of their own lives first before being in a band and it, it's just it seems like that's made the band more sustainable over the years. Yeah, they were definitely criticized so often for leaving money on the table. But one thing, another thing is mentors. It seems like they, uh, you know, especially Eddie had some uh, mentors. Pete, obviously, as you mentioned already, but you know Neil Young as well. 
and you know, I think it's interesting to hear you talk just a little bit about what Neil Young meant to the band, or or at least to Eddie. Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, you know, they uh, they toured together. They made the album Mirrorball together. I think Mirrorball is a fascinating period because that was really about Neil and the band, other than Eddie. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it was something really valuable for everyone else in Pearl Jam to feel like we matter too, you know, it's not just about our lead singer. Cause it sort of really seemed like a lot of the focus was on at that moment in time. Um, but yeah, I mean, Neil Young, Pete Townsend, you know, like Mike Watt, uh, you know, Joe Strummer. I mean, these are all people that had ups and downs in their career. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that, uh, you know, weren't just about you know cashing the check at the end of the day that you know, that that you could um i think they showed this band that you know th- this is what you need to do if if you want to be in this for a long time you know so I, I i definitely think uh that was valuable you know there's something about eddie vetter too and i've said this before my theory in Eddie Vedder is that he didn't enjoy being a rock star in his twenties, but he loves being a rock star in his fifties. You know, Mm -hmm. I think he, I think there was a part of him that always wanted to be like a middle-aged grizzled veteran, you know, because there's something about that where no one can take away from you that you've paid your dues by then, you know, like as a young, younger guy, you know, I, it seems like there was some amount of imposter syndrome with him that was exacerbated by Pearl Jam just having such a meteoric mm-hmm. rise. And, you know, I think that was partly part of the reason why he was, he gravitated to all these like older guys mm-hmm. as a, as a younger man. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also psychoanalyze him that, you know, he had issues with his father mm-hmm. Uh, with his stepfather and of course not knowing his real father so to what degree was he looking for surrogate father figures you know i I, you know that's up to eddie and his shrink i guess but you know you can do the armchair uh, psychoanalyst thing with that but i just feel like because you look at him now he seems so much more content yeah and and happy and and you know comfortable in his skin and it just seems like that imposter syndrome maybe that he felt in the nineties is, is, is gone because he is now what Neil Young and Pete Townsend were, were to him. Like when he was yeah. younger, you know, like now he's in that same class of like, you know, seasoned grizzled veteran rock guys, you know, that have been around for several decades. Yeah. I thought it was beautiful to, to read towards the end, just how comfortable he was in his skin and just kind of just his maturity and owning some of the, the type of music that he definitely wouldn't playing to the type of music and singing the type of songs he wouldn't have played uh, early on. Where's that, um, where's that pick for on the cover from that pick is incredible. That's, that's on the cover of the book. Yeah. That's from a concert. Uh, it was like a, uh, uh, it was like an album release show in Seattle. Okay, that was yeah. and like right around the time Ten came out, so it was like late okay. August of nineteen ninety one. So it really is like the beginning Captured of the band, the, but you know, or or near the beginning of the band. Yeah, 
So um, just kind of bring us home. What uh, what did it mean, or how fun was it to write this book to put to use your? It's obvious when you know you speak to those two thousand bootlegs. You, you know how intently you listened was so obvious, and just how deeply. How fun was it to be able to take that that those hours and you know all this uh, Pearl Jam knowledge and really d- do this deep dive? It's a fun book, is what I'm saying, and I, there's a lot of fandom in it, and a lot of your spirit of your love of the band really rings in it. So it must have been pretty special writing this, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the reason that you write a book or the reason why I write books mm-hmm. is because you know when I when I make the pitch, what I'm really saying is. I want to be obsessed with this for, you know, a year or two. Yeah. And you giving me the money to write this will give me permission to be obsessed with this. Mm-hmm. So, like, when you talk about like listening to all those bootlegs, <laughs> well I mean, I was buying boot. I, I I was buying a ton of bootlegs while uh-huh. I was writing the book because it's just like, well, I have I have an excuse to do this. I have license to do this. It's like because I'm technically working, <laughs> and it is hard work, but. No you know, it, it's something that I would want to do anyway, but now I can be like, well, I, uh, I'm not just screwing around digging into the minutiae of this band. This is actually like music criticism or this is journalism, you know, it's like you write the book so you can do the research. Like, that's how I feel. Yeah. It's like, you know, like writing everything, it, it just justifies all of the listening I did in my office, awesome. you know, with he- headphones extremely loud and yeah. <laughs> and I'm taking notes and stuff. But it was like, I wanted to listen to all this stuff. Oh, and it's like, well, if I write about it, then it's justified. So yeah. I, 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 like, I don't have to be listening to something else. A I way to make it guilt free. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I mean, like, look, I listen to like a lot of music for fun too. It's like, sure. not all for work, but you know, it, there is something about it. It's like, well, my, like, hon, I can't come up right now. I have to stay in my office. I'm working. I'm, I have to listen to all these bootlegs, you know. Uh, if I were just doing that, screwing around, I, I would have much less license to do that in my life. So, yeah. I, so, yeah, like you, like you were saying, like, it's, it's fun to be able to use the knowledge, but it's really like the acquiring of the knowledge is like what's fun. And then it's the journey, yeah. using it is the excuse for yep. acquiring it if, it if that makes any sense it sure does i just love there's just so many fun nuggets in there i love there's sneaky arrested development references i love breaking down type one versus type two the glorified g story about how that uh, uh, the song's about dave i didn't know that as well but there's just so much to chew on uh you know i want the listener to know that we barely touched on the the amount of stories that are in this book and like I said to you uh, earlier, um, when I was reaching out, I thought I knew about Pearl Jam and I, I, there was a lot I was missing. So I just really, I love the opportunity to talk about it. And I'm looking forward to see uh, what band you explore next uh, uh, moving forward. I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, what, what's, what's, on, what's in the future for you as well. Well, yeah, I am working on something now, but uh, I'm not going to announce it yet. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, cool. you'll, you'll, you'll dig that. Cool. That's good to hear. So thank you so much, Steve. And I really appreciate the time. It was a great talk. Great. Thank you so much, man.
Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.